the War Nomads podcast. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous independent traveler. Hey, welcome to our podcast delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand covering more than half a million travellers. Nice to be with you. My name is Kim. And I'm Phil and this is our fifth destination podcast, this time exploring South Africa. Other episodes you can download via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and they include Croatia, Canada, Iceland, and Panama. Now, don't forget the Panama episode because it turns out it's much more than just the canal. It sounds like a fantastic destination. I could not agree more. Would not have even had it on my radar until we started researching it for the World Nomads podcast. In fact, in 2018, it's top of the places shortlisted for our holiday. That is Panama. Check it out. This episode, though, South Africa, Phil. Uh, the southernmost uh, country of Africa, of course, hence the name. And it's often referred to as the Rainbow Nation to describe the country's multicultural diversity, especially in the wake of apartheid. Mm. And the place, in fact, has 11 different languages. But, of course, the most commonly used is a form of English. I've been there, but it is English. <laughs> Well, we'll touch on you being there in this podcast. There are a couple of things that come to mind when I think about South Africa. Safaris and cage diving with sharks. We'll explore both in this episode. We'll find out how to experience, though, a safari on a budget. Hear Brian McFarlane's amazing story of culling sharks to protecting them. And speaking of amazing stories... How about the bloke who survived a bite from one of the world's most venomous snakes? <laughs> That's coming up as well. Plus, travel news in which Phil catches up with an Aussie stranded in Bali after the eruption of Mount Agung. Ask Phil and Phil's quiz question as we focus on South Africa. Okay, a bit cryptic for you this week, King. Uh, King. It is. King, King will do. King, I like that. King, King, Kim. King, Kim. At what time is her flight coming in, the one where the moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation? What time is her flight? The answer at the end of the show. Kim Whitaker runs a hybrid accommodation model in South Africa. It's called Once in Cape Town and another hostel called Once in Joburg. Now, the Acom is a, a vibrant kind of youth hub option in an old hotel building, so they're really cool. And along with accommodation, they have an explore section with local free-guided tours every day, which Kim will touch on in this chat, and they are super cool. But to kickstart the podcast, I ask him for a snapshot of South Africa. So, first of all, it's a place with a very, very amenable uh, class so it's usually got amazing weather, um, beautiful landscapes. Um, there are a whole bunch of microclimates. So, you know, you'll find Cape Town, Johannesburg, Durban, um, you know, and, and everywhere in between have got very uh, sort of different climates. Um, so there's always a beach to sit on every time of the year, no matter what the time of the year is. Um, apart from amazing sort of natural beauty like Table Mountain and the Drakensberg, um, we've also got uh, amazing wildlife. So, you know, if seeing the Big Five is on your list of things to do, then the Kruger Park or Pilansberg Park or um, the Addo Elephant Park is really a place to go. So um, sort of in nature, these are nature conservation areas where the big five exists, so lions and elephants and, and, and all the rest. Fantastic. So can you name a few things then to do off the beaten track? So some of the things that we offer include going into a township for a braai. So this is a braai is South Africa's version of a barbie. Um, and basically it is getting together with new friends and just cooking an enormous amount of meat. 
um, in in the middle of the township. So you're surrounded by sort of shacks and and um, you know the particular township we visit in Cape Town is called Kugeletu in Soweto. We go to a place called Shafpozi, which is in Soweto, and we really experience township life. So proper amazing South African hip hop music, great local beers, um, another off-the-beaten-track adventure that you can do is a cocktail experience in Alexandria Township in um, in Johannesburg. Um, we also do trips to local farmers' markets. Um, yeah, there, there are a whole variety of different trips one can do. So you can help travellers that, that stay with you uh, experience those. The, well, the, the barbie sounds fantastic, and so do the cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And we do, we do little walking tours around Boerkarp, which is uh, an area, a very historical, brightly colored area in Cape Town. Um, yeah, and so, you know, showing off our Cape Town is really key. So perhaps, you know, someone, one of the staff, um, one of the guys at reception, maybe one of his friends is hosting a skating party. So he'll sort of invite people to come join if they want to listen to some live music, do some skating. Um, every day is different. Okay, well, sounds fantastic. Where would a world nomad find you? Uh-huh. Um, any one of Cape Town's top coffee coffee bars is where I would literally be found most of the time. Uh, South Africa's always got amazing coffee, which is great. Um, but if they wanted to find us online, um, you'd head to our website, which is www.stayatonce.com. Um, or online, you can find us at Once in Cape Town. That's hashtag Once in Cape Town or hashtag Once in Joburg um, or at Once Youth Hotels. Thank you. Sounds like you're enjoying your coffee. We will put those links in our show notes. And, Phil, you've been lucky enough to go on a safari in South Africa. One of the most memorable travel experiences I've ever had. It was also one of the most expensive, by the way, but it was a special uh, special trip. Uh, Absolutely amazing. Open camp, uh, so you had to be escorted from your room to the main building by somebody carrying a rifle at all the times because all sorts of wild game would just wander in and out of the camp. Uh, we got shown to our room and it had a plunge pool and mm. on the edge of a Lose. river and looked over and there was a big pile of animal droppings down there and I said, what, what's that from? And apparently it was elephant. So I just wanted to know if you could get that on rooms. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely amazing experience. Well, Saw leopards and everything. Well, we caught up with Terry to find out how to save some money with African budget safaris. So, obviously, with Phil, we've learnt that you can pay thousands, but can you pay hundreds? You can definitely pay hundreds. You know, we, we, we there's guys out here that offer a safari from, I would say, the, 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 the least amount that you'd be expected to pay would be about 100 US to 120 US dollars. And you can pay up to two, three thousand dollars a night. So there's a huge variety of of um, of operators out there offering everything from budget camping tours, where it's participation, where you expected to help put up your own tent, help with the kind of uh, cleaning up after the meals, uh, and that's obviously the real budget stuff. Uh, but you'd be looking at about. 100 to 120 dollars a day and that would include uh, all your meals all your game drives um, transports you name it uh, the only thing that would be required of you there is is a level of participation you know and obviously the these kind of real budget trips really appeal to that 18 to 39 market um, that really don't mind roughing it and 
traveling in a, a, a larger group as well. Um, for the more discerning client, there's everything in between. So if you're looking, if you had $150 plus, uh, you could easily find a really comfortable small group, large style safari, um, where the only difference would be your level of accommodation would, would not be the same same level as, say, a Londolozi or, or one of the five-star guys. It, it really, the South African tourism industry caters for every single budget and and uh, uh, age group out there. So it's, it's, it really is a, a, a very comprehensive market. So by budget, you don't mean, look, you might see some wildlife, but you might not? <laughs> No, not at all. You know, the wildlife, whether you're paying 5000 US dollar a night or whether you're paying $100 a night, you, you're going to – the, the wildlife is, is is the same. You know, you, you're going to be going into the Kruger or the Greater Kruger or any of the parks and you're, you're still going to be in a 4 by 4 um, vehicle and your chances are just as good in spotting the game. And when you're doing a safari, you are heading into um, the wildlife territory. I would I would suspect that there are some pretty strict rules. Uh, it's very strict. You know, you, once you go into to these wildlife areas, it's imperative that you you listen to the guides and and take aboard what they say. You know, people tend to get a little too excited when they see the wildlife and they jump up and shout and scream and you know there's various reactions that we've seen over the years but as a whole there is a very strict briefing that's given right at the beginning and you know 99% of people do adhere by it uh, especially if you go with a safari company um, you normally see the main transgressors or, or issues that do arise is when people decide to do a self-drive option and they drive themselves into the park um, but yes, uh, you know we we've had cases of arriving at waterholes and and looking across the waterhole and seeing people sitting out having a picnic oh. next to the waterhole. Uh, you know it, it, the transgressions. You could write a book about them. But should you go with a safari company, you know uh, the dangers of the bush are, are, are explained to you from the word go. Well, there are those dangers that are there. I'm not. I would love to do a safari, but I'm not particularly comfortable um, around animals. So if a lion was to come close to to one of the vehicles, for instance, I'd be less inclined to be jumping up and down and going, "Wow." Um, <laughs> I'm sure you've come across people who have felt nervous. Is it safe? It's completely safe. You know, the wildlife will see a vehicle and they will see the, the, the outline of the vehicle and they'll see the vehicle as the object. They will not see you as a person sitting in the vehicle. So if you were to, say, jump up and, and go, your head would go beyond the, the ceiling of the vehicle, they'd notice that. But they don't dis- discern the the humans inside the vehicle they only see the vehicle it's a so we're not a a traveling snack pack definitely not thank you so much terry (laughs) for the for the chat brilliant that's great thanks for that links to african budget safaris in our show notes now and now ask phil 
plenty of questions about driving around South Africa. We've all heard stories about carjacking, but in fact, self-driving around the country is easy and pretty safe. Watch out for the baboons and elephants on the road, though. One of the most popular questions on Ask a Nomad is this one from Elaward. Which is the best way to travel from Johannesburg to Mozambique via the Kruger Park? Renata's answer, echoed by many others, was to rent a car and self-drive. The N4, that's the name of the main highway, is excellent and easy to drive, says Renata, but it's not a cheap option. If you want to save money, catch a bus from Joburg to Nelsprit and hire a car from there. It saves yourself a bit of a boring drive as yeah. well, by the way. It's also worth noting that taking a hire car across the border into Mozambique requires the permission of the South African hire company and you'll have to pay extra for the Mozambique insurance cover too. Um, World Nomads Travel Insurance, don't worry about that um, you know, excess waiver that they ask you to pay, it's covered by your insurance. Oh wow. If you have a travel question or think you can provide some insight, go to answers.worldnomads.com and ask a nomad. Well speaking of nomads, let's check in with them and given we'll hear from a guy later in the episode who survived a bite from one of the world's most venomous snakes, we ask who's been bitten by an animal while travelling? Uh, I haven't, not so far, but there's still time. Bad bugs. I was, I was bit of my bad bugs here. Uh, we got one in unit, but the problem was, the only problem was bad bugs. Yeah, it was really hard time. No, it would be the same. I was in Spain and um, was staying at uh, some university as a host, host place accommodation and. Uh, yeah, it would be bed bugs as well. It was really bad. It was the day before I left, came back to Australia, so I just had like a whole rash here on my arm, and yeah, it wasn't fun at all. Mm, no, not yet. Thank you, God, for nothing bad happened with me here in, in Australia. Thank God. Like, okay, mosquito, but it doesn't count. <laughs> I, can't, I, I would love to say, you know, like a red back spider or, you know, one of them, but no. Shark? Enough. Oh, a shark. Yeah, well, now I'll call my travel insurance for that so I can get a bit paid for that, but yeah, yeah. This chat, I think, is great. Brian McFarlane operates Great White Shark Tours in South Africa. And before I could even throw him my first question, he anticipated what I was going to ask, and I just really didn't expect his answer. I think one of your questions is going to be, when did you start this business, or should we wait until you actually interview me and ask me about those questions? <laughs> no, well, you can kick right into it. When did you start the business? You know, 20 years ago... We stopped, we stopped. Well, let me even go before that. There was a period in my life that you didn't worry about conservation and being a fisherman and having these great white sharks around in the area, we, um, I, I went out and subsidized my income by going out and catching them with rod and line and with an anchor and a chain and a buoy a float. I'm not proud of that. And then... Um, when the people got to hear about it throughout the world, I had people from all over the world used to come and catch a great white with me. I took it like a charter business catching these guys, which I don't really like to even talk about. It was a bleak, bleak period in my life when you're younger and you don't worry. But about tw- in 1991, the government stopped all catching of great whites and killing them in South Africa. And slowly I saw the demand to go out and view them and that was 20, basically 20 years ago. I, st- I had a small boat, and we went out to this Dyer Island, which is um, nine kilometers out to sea, and we took tourists out. We took six at a time, six people at a time, and took them, attracted the sharks to the boat, and showed the people 
these beautiful animals. And that was the start of this massive business which it is today. So, Brian, when you were catching the sharks and you were morally aware that it was, wasn't the right thing to do, were you still aware of what beautiful creatures they are? Not really. Uh, I, I, I've been a diver all my life, and <clears throat> the biggest fear of any diver, surfer or swimmer, is a shark. So he was an enemy as far as I'm concerned, and the only good shark was a dead shark. There was no remorse. There was no sign of uh, feeling of, oh, I've killed this beautiful animal, but, but, and I say but, the more I started to work with them and preserve them and look after them and show the clients or the people or my friends, the more respect you got for them, the more you learned about them, the more you saw they weren't the mindless animals that you imagine them to be, and they're certainly not swimming around the ocean looking to see where's the next human being I can catch or kill or maim or eat, because human beings are definitely not on their food chain at all. So why are we so obsessed with great whites then? You know why? And the only thing I can think of is because so little is known about them. This is the big thing. So little is known about them that they're possibly the only animal in the sea that so little is known about. You might say, why not? Because they can't be kept in captivity. Nowhere in the world can a great white be kept in captivity. They've tried it in California. They've tried it in America in different places in these massive oceanariums. They're very stressful animals, and after a while, they die. So they can't be kept in captivity. They can't be studied. They can't be, you can't learn more about them. The only way you can learn about them is in the natural environment in the sea. So, so little is known about them that the people are, are, are just ignorant to what they do. And every now and again, every now and again, somebody in the world, someone will get bitten or attacked by a shark and it'll make headline news. Whereas, um, Thousands of people, thousands of people get killed on a, on a yearly basis by mosquitoes, snakes, elephants, lions, and it's a small issue. But if someone gets attacked by a shark, it's a massive issue. I actually gave a talk once, and I'm telling you statistically, there are 750,000 people die in the world from great white shark, uh, from, sorry, from mosquitoes. And 10 people in the world die from shark attacks throughout the world. Isn't that a crazy statistic? But if someone dies of a mosquito bite or malaria, it's nothing. But if someone gets attacked and bitten by a great white, it's a massive boo-hai in the paper and the news. So in terms of the, the cage diving then or the experience that you offer, you put how many people in a cage and how far into the water do you submerge it? Our boats are huge now. We carry up to 40 people at uh-huh. a time, five, or, five crew, and the cage, obviously the bigger the boat, the bigger the cage, and we put eight people in a cage at a time. The cage is not under the water. It's, it's two meters high, and it's about two feet of the cage or half a meter of the cage sticks out of the water, it's on, it floats, and it's tied to the boat. So we attract the shark to the boat, we put the people in suits, we put them in the cage, actually they put their heads, they put their bodies in the water, their shoulders and their heads above the water. When the shark comes in close enough, we attract him in the bait, we tell the people the shark's coming from the left, the shark's coming from the right, go down, 
They've got handrails and footrails. They hold onto the handrail. They lower their heads into the water, submerge themselves, not even, uh, I don't know whether you're talking feet or meters, but half a meter, and they look straight into the shark's face or head or body. And, and then when their breath, it's a breath hold situation, when their breath is finished, they pop up again and, um, and breathe. That's the way it's done. Anybody and everybody can do diving. We have people from, as I say, all walks of life, everywhere in the world. Some of them have never even swum before, but they can dive. They can dive. And so everybody that comes on the boat can dive. Now, that is super interesting. Do you agree? Uh, Fascinating. But there was one question I had to ask Brian. I do apologise as he explained the experience. And you you can't tell me that you don't want to know. Has anyone ever pooped themselves? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm telling you, we take a thousand people a month, a thousand people from all walks of life, being male, female, big, small, fat, thin, they have pooped themselves. They've peed themselves because as you take the suit off, you get these different smells from the different <laughs> shock systems which they have. And people have, in your words, have pooped themselves already. But, <laughs> but, but, <laughs> in saying that, in saying that, the biggest satisfaction I get out of this job is educating the unknown, the unknown to these people, showing them the beauty, showing them the grace, showing them this magnificent animal and changing the mindset from the monster. You know, 90% of the people that come with us, they say, when is the boat, is the boat big enough? Is the cage strong enough? Is the shark going to attack? Is the steel strong enough? And we show them the beauty of the animal, the gracefulness, and we change the mindset, and the people go away saying, wow, they can't believe it is such a peaceful, graceful, beautiful animal. And the big thing is, and this is the big thing, in the world, millions upon millions of sharks are getting caught and killed and their fins cut off, and because the people are ignorant and they think it's a monster, they walk past or they buy it or they walk past the shop and say, that's all right, he's a monster. But hopefully, hopefully part of our job is to educate people and show people the beauty and the gracefulness of this animal. That he's not a monster, he's not attacking the cage, he's not attacking the boat, he's only doing his job of work. And they go away with a different mindset and when they see that again, they say, that's not right. That must stop, and hopefully we're making an impact in the world that people will stop killing and culling sharks for their fins and their, and their bodies because they've got this terrible reputation. Well, I had to ask, <laughs> had to ask, and nicely finished up there, Brian, who, by the way, is a bit of a legend in the shark conservation world. I think he's done 55 movies. We'll have links to Great White Shark Tours in our show notes. And he also extended an invitation to the World Nomads crew to experience the dive. Do you reckon you'd poop yourself, Phil? Uh, yeah, very probably. <laughs> I reckon I could do it. I reckon I could do it. Yeah, yes, it would be thrilling, absolutely, but I think I could do it as well. Although I have seen those pictures where a great white does manage to go through a cage somewhere once, so I, Not with that Brian. would be in the back of my mind. That's Not all. with Brian. Okay, before we hear that amazing story of the man that survived a bite from one of the world's most venomous snakes, let's get your travel news. 
The volcano on the Indonesian island of Bali finally erupted after threatening to do so for several weeks. The airport has been closed intermittently, depending on the prevailing wind blowing the ash cloud over airspace. The result is that thousands of travellers were stranded, while the holiday plans of hundreds more hoping to get to the island were in tatters. One of the people stuck on Bali is World Nomads customer Bob Hazel, and I spoke to him by phone just a few days ago. How are you? Mate, I'm okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking. You guys, you're all right? Like I said, worst places to be stuck, right? Yeah, exactly. Sorry, just finishing a little bite there. Um, no, we, we could be a lot worse off. As, as bad as it is here, I've just got to wait till the guys finish cleaning the ash out of the pool before I can go for a swim. <laughs> That's about the extent of our, our uh, troubles, uh, apart from obviously missing the flight. But as we have no sort of prior arrangements back in Australia where – we're a bit time-free time, time free at the moment, which is a very handy spot to be in. Um, can, I think a lot of other people are probably a lot worse off in that respect. Yeah, well, that's right. well when did you get there, mate? Do, I mean, uh, were you aware of the, of the potential for an eruption when you went? Yeah, um, we, we were aware that it had sort of been happening because a similar sort of eruption I'm sure you're, you're aware of. I didn't know whether it cancelled flights or not, but something similar happened in September and they were saying it was imminent. Um, but then it had been downgraded to, I think, the orange level, which is one below the red. So we were aware of it, as it's always in your mind, um, knowing where we are and, and the history of things. And, and after speaking to the locals, because there was, there was also, when we were going to a few of the um, restaurants, there was some, um, some charity, charity organisations sort of helping to feed the people that were still evacuated from the area. So we knew it was still a potential problem and it was something people were talking about, but it's something that you just sort of, hope that it's not going to affect you too much, I suppose. And so uh, when you were, were you first aware that, you know, an eruption had, had happened, were you told about it or did you feel it? Um, no, we didn't feel it at all. Um, where where we are here, we're in Ubud, I think it's, it's uh, about 40 kilometres from Mount Agung. We can see it um, when we go to a, the flat area. So I was just looking at it yesterday sort of, all the smoke still pluming out the top of the volcano and you can obviously see the ash on the ground here a little bit, not nowhere near as thick as what it would be in other areas, but we can still see it here. Um, but we, we were first made aware the following morning, I think it, I read that it, it first erupted at 5.30 PM and we found out the next morning when we got up, uh, there was two of the, two of the young guys and staff members here were working and then they, they made us aware because you could tell there was something wrong. They didn't tell us straight away, but when we asked them what the matter was, they they told us what had happened and they were really concerned for their family and well-being and, and we sort of figured everything out from there. Um, so we, we didn't have to actually check out of our, our um, accommodation and, and we were e- easily able to extend, which was, was really helpful there. Yesterday we, we, we met a lot of um, locals who were sort of all quite concerned. They were telling us that they were – uh, taping up the windows, stocking up their food supplies, getting um, getting sort of emergency procedures in, um, sort of preparing for the worst sort of case scenario in um, in stocking up, and that's sort of a bit more what's sort of been the more of an emphasis here. Um, there's sort of been an increased number of people wearing uh, the masks around the streets and on the on the bikes on the roads. We've met before, haven't we? We've we've helped you and your partner Marla out previously as well. So uh, uh, it's, I know oh, you're a big a customer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I um I was actually even before um, the World Nomads team helped out Marla, um, I was I was helped out myself 
I was very fortunate in, in Cusco. I didn't even actually have to deal with anything at all. It was all dealt with between well nomads and and the um, the treating doctor when I spent a night in hospital with altitude sickness. But then after that, um, yeah, after after yeah, we well, we've met you, Lisa, the whole the whole team at, at World Nomads, and had amazing help um, after my partner Marla got sick in India with encephalitis and spent following six weeks in hospital before being flown back to back to Australia. Well, happy to report that Bob is home safe and well. And uh, in that uh, chat there, we mentioned Lisa Fry from our emergency assistance team. And guess what? We've got her in the studio with us now. Hi, Lisa. Hello. You actually don't want to be talking to you if you're a traveller. Because that's 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 really when you're, you know, it's gone pear-shaped, right? Yep. If you're a traveller in trouble, though, you do want to be talking to our team. Um, It's what we're there for. And emergency assistance ranges from anything... I've lost my passport, I've missed my flights, I'm homesick, what do I do? Right up to I'm having a heart attack, I'm really unwell, get me out of here. Homesick? You genuinely get calls from people saying I'm homesick? We've actually got one case on at the moment of someone who's homesick and we've got a medical team that are available 24-7 as well. So if it's homesick can you know result in a whole range of different things as well. Um, so if we have a young traveller who is seriously homesick, we can talk them through what they need to do, give them some advice, um, some general things on, you know, they might want to go, like sightseeing things. If they really want to come home, then we can put them in touch with a travel agent or the airline or mum and dad, and yes, they come home. Can you also prescribe a cup of concrete and tell them to harden up? <laughs> You're terrible, Phil. I know, but come on. We love our travellers, Phil. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this is why I'm not in the EA team. Exactly. Right? <laughs> is it a genuine claim, though? Um, no, it's not a genuine claim, um, unless it results in something else, like yep. mental health issues, um, self-harming, anything like that. So they're the kinds of flags that we would look out for. Cool. There's a whiteboard over in the EA team area which has like the worst of the worst that's going on at the moment Uh, what sort of things do we get up on those boards what have we got at the moment Uh, we do have a few uh, cases on at the moment but one of probably the worst of the worst that I've seen certainly in my career um, of a world nomads traveler we did have a 31 year old male in Jaipur in India who had been sightseeing at the palace and when he walked out he was mauled by a bull. Um, it was pretty horrific. He was with his fiance at the time, um, and sadly, he passed away a day later. Wow! So that's the worst that can happen. So much. you would assist the family with bringing that that man, poor man, back. That's and, right. Wow! So he um, he actually um, he so he was Argentinian, and so even though his policy was from New Zealand, we took him back to his family in Argentina. Um, his fiance was from Finland and so what we did was we sent her home to Argentina with him uh, so that she could be with the family and at the time of when they were doing the funeral and then we will send her back to Finland when she's ready. Wow what a job. I mean that's terrible for them as well but that must affect you as well when you're handling those sorts of cases. It does actually and it's the, the whole team and you know we I mean, death is is absolutely the worst case that we can get. And it's the most, you know, in terms of sensitivities uh, around our cases, it's the most sensitive case we have. And our team get really affected by those, especially when there's a young person, like a a 31-year-old male. Um, So we have, you know, we do have medical staff. We do have some debriefing sessions. Uh, We've got our EAP counselling. We've got a special little room that we call the chill-out room. So if you're really upset about something, you just go to the chill-out room, go for a walk or, or whatever you 
you just go and get some downtime. And conversely, do you get hammered by some people that are very stressed about making a claim? Yes. Or so, seeking assistance? So last week, for example, we had the barley ash cloud um, where we were smashed, not in an alcoholic way, but we were absolutely smashed. Um, so on top of that, we also had 55 critical medical cases that we were dealing with. So we had a guy that we'd brought down um, in Kathmandu. He, we brought him down from Everest Base Camp where he was having his fingers amputated because of frostbite. So in between that case to someone stuck in Bali uh, that couldn't get out, you know, for two days and they wanted to return home for work, um, yeah, we, we, we get absolutely smashed. And it's a way of, you know, how do we put a different hat on to tell someone, look, we need to put this into perspective. You know, we'd love to help you out with a, a Learjet into Bali over an ash cloud, but we just can't and then still help our young guy in Nepal as well. Yeah. Well, we are about to um, hear from a guy who's bitten, been bitten by one of Africa's most dangerous, dangerous snakes. Would you be covered for snake bite? Yes. Definitely. Unlet, well, no. We have had a case that wasn't covered for a snake bite, and this was our um, pit viper in Vietnam. And the reason it wasn't covered, it was 3 o'clock in the morning. The guy was <laughs> oh. getting out of the swimming pool. He saw a pit viper. He claims to have seen a pit viper. Um, swung it around his head. He grabbed a hold of it, swung <laughs> yeah. it around a few times and flung it into the uh, into the jungle. Uh, so he'd actually placed himself in needless risk. So that's recklessness, as you often that's say. That's it. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. let's hear this guy's story. Thanks, Lisa. Now, Phil, the black mamba, it's one of Africa's most feared and respected snakes. It's <laughs> super fast, I know. It's super intelligent and shrewd. Some even say it has magical abilities, which adds to the myth and the mystery of the black mamba. Now, one of these myths is the mamba bites its tail, makes itself into a loop so that it can roll downhill. (laughs) As it comes to the bottom, it straightens like an arrow and attacks. (laughs) No, this sounds like a joke. This is like the hoop snake, right? One more. Another myth maintains the snake, being super intelligent, as I said, Plans attacks on humans. It ambushes a car by waiting on the side of the road, <laughs> then coils itself around the wheel to bite the driver when he reaches his destination. Okay. Okay. Let's see how smart they are when they meet a shovel. <laughs> <laughs> Mark Later is a photographer and author, and it was when he was shooting for his book Serpentine, he was actually bitten by a black mamba, and oh, I could hear you giggling no. about those myths, Mark. Yeah, I don't know that the snake is that is that intelligent, but but you know, there's so many people that are terrified of snakes that it doesn't surprise me that there are stories like that. You've been bitten by one. Now these snakes, up until antivenine was available, were were deadly. You were gone within within 20 minutes. And in some places um, throughout Africa, where you can't get to a hospital quick enough to have the antivenine, people people die. But you survived. Yeah, I uh, <laughs> I had been working on my book Serpentine, as you mentioned, and I had been photographing hundreds and hundreds of snakes, and they're all about two or three feet long. And when a snake is two or three feet long, you can kind of judge how how quickly it can move towards you, if if it was even going to do that. Um, so I kind of knew what I was dealing with, and we've photographed all kinds of venomous and non-venomous snakes, and I was kind of preconditioned to know what was possible with all these snakes. And then I shot the black mamba with a, uh, somebody who owned, he was a collector basically, he had, he had many different snakes from all over the world. He was in Central America. And um, 
the Black Mamba I was shooting was 14 feet long. Okay, <laughs> now we're getting into serious snake territory. That's, that's huge. So I didn't quite figure out how a 14-foot-long snake can kind of just use part of its body to propel the rest of its body to do whatever it wants very, very, very kind of quickly. It didn't really do anything quickly. I was just standing over it, photographing it, and I looked away or something, and it <laughs> it had wrapped itself around my ankle. Not 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 in the in the in the not in an aggressive way. Just it just kind of <laughs> did this, and I'm like, well, and and I and I you know I grew up catching snakes as a kid, so I wasn't really terrified of it, and I knew not to move or jump or do anything quickly. So I just kind of asked the snake handler to to uh, give me my little my little Canon point and shoot camera instead of the big camera I was using for the book, and I just hooked up the strobe, which is this red wire that hooks up to the strobe and I was just taking about 20 or 30 photos of this once in a lifetime moment where I have a black mamba wrapped around my leg. While I was taking all these photos, the snake handler said, all right, enough of that. And he grabbed his, his metal hook and he went to pull the snake slowly off my leg. Uh, and, and my face is behind the camera. So I didn't see anything. I just, I felt something on my leg, which I thought was just his hook hitting my leg and he uh pulls the snake off and everything's fine and i'm going back changing cameras and you know maybe 30 seconds have gone by and he goes dude you got hit and i look <laughs> and there's blood just gushing down my my calf into my shoe and he goes how do you feel i'm like well i feel fine except i just <laughs> got bitten by a black mama so now i'm like <laughs> getting a little nervous um he goes, how's your heart rate? How's your, uh, I think, I forget what he's, how's, how's your heart? How's your breathing? How's your, uh, are you dizzy or anything like that? I forget. He asked me three questions. That was fine. I, I think black mambas have a, uh, as a lot of snakes do, they have heat sensors kind mm -hmm. of in their, behind their jaw. And <laughs> it was amazing how both fangs hit the, that major artery in your calf, <laughs> in my, in my calf, no. both of them. And that, and that's, and that's why I bled so heavily. And he goes, well, you, you, it's clearly in your blood system. If there if there was venom, you'd be you'd be feeling it. You'd be dizzy. You'd be passed out. You'd be dead. Because now now two three four minutes have passed, and we're like, he goes, "How do you feel now? How do you feel now?" I'm like, "I still feel fine. Nothing's really happening." So, I, I, I we were basically done with the photos, and I packed up and I left and went back to the hotel. And uh, later on that evening at dinner, I'm, I'm looking through the the, the camera. You know, the little little screen on the back of it, looking at all these photos, and there's like 20 or 30 of them. But there's one that looks like, you know, they're very small, so you really can't see too much detail. And I'm like, man, that looks like he's biting me in that one photo. <laughs> so, so I get back to my hotel room later, and I was at dinner. I go back to the hotel room, and I, I put it up on, my, on a laptop screen, and I blow it up, and sure enough, <laughs> I have this amazing photo of a black mamba sinking its jaws into my calf. Well, oh, so I didn't. I failed to mention when he, when the snake handler pulled the snake away with the hook, he snagged that red cord that was hanging and connected to the strobe. So that that cord started shaking, and that's what scared the snake and made it strike. 
That is an amazing story that earned Mick a mention in Wikipedia and he's kindly given us permission to share the photo in our show notes and you've got to check that photo out. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Unbelievable. Thank you, but no thank you. Right. Phil, let's wrap up with the answer to your quiz question. And that was, it was like a riddle. (laughs) What time is her flight coming in? The one where the moonlit wings reflect the stars that guide me towards salvation. What time is her flight? 12.30. I'm talking about the Toto song. Africa. I left the planes. That was a great song. That's the one. Here's a snippet. It was my theme song driving around South Africa as well. We kept putting that on. Awesome. Well, next episode is our Christmas special where we'll explore hot versus cold, not hot chicken versus cold chicken for lunch, but for Christmas, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere compared to the Northern Hemisphere. Subscribe, share, rate on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher and Phil, contact us at podcast at worldnomads.com. Do it. We want to hear from you. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.